Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And we have a special guest with us, the managing partner of Merida Capital Partners, Mr. Mitch Barukovitz. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Len. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Someone who can uh, pronounce uh, Merida is always a, you know, you got to do that podcast. I, I, thought it, I thought it was Barukovitz that there was. It's Barukowitz, but you know, you're so close that I can't. Well, there's a Baruch, there's a huh in there somewhere, you, right? You could definitely hock some loogies while saying my name. It's happened in a... I mean, people used to walk up and, and when people find out I went to Brandeis, it's really kind of like a double, I, people walk up and just speak Hebrew to me right out of the gate. <laughs> You've actually spoken some Hebrew to me, I think, uh, over some time. I know no Hebrew, but I can tell you. I think you Shana said Shana Shana Tava. Tava. That's about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. That's Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Um, so, Mitch, I, 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 I want to know more like about you and sort of your, your story. And then we can jump into like the sure. business stuff. But where did you actually grow up? Uh, I was born in Queens. Uh, and my, my mother got divorced and remarried when I was very young. And so we moved out to Long Island. So I, I really am. I, went, I was a young Queens resident, you know, Mets, Jets, Knicks and uh, Islanders, actually, because we were, we were in the shadow of Shea Stadium in, in Queens. And, uh, and then grew up in Stony Brook, mostly. Got it, yeah. Which is yes. out on the island, yeah. Siblings? I have an older brother who, who's pretty well known to the Merida crew. He, he rocks an afro still. Um, and, uh, and an older sister. I'm, I'm the youngest of three. 
So when you went to school, uh, I read somewhere that you're also an athlete, right? What, yeah. what sport, did, what sports did you play or what's, well, growing up, I was, I was a pretty accomplished soccer player. Um, and, and, uh, a runner, uh, not maybe officially. I mean, I played every sport because the good news is I'm short, but when you can run very fast, which is, is what I could do, you could pretty much play any sport as a kid, right? Cause there's just a physical difference, you know, until you get to, to a level where skill matters. So, um, as a kid, I played any sport that required speed, but, uh, ironically I played tennis and, uh, and ran track in college and, and how I came to play tennis is, um, my parents had had gotten remarried when I was young, like I said, and and so my my dad, who my stepdad, who I refer to as my dad, uh, inherited three kids, and um, so that my parents had never been alone for a, a summer, and we were all going to sleepaway camp for the first time. So I was in sixth grade, and um, so I had a cast on. I had broken my wrist at a school dance. I, people were throwing me up, and I was doing flips, and um, I think I got two out, and I they missed me, and I I landed from twenty feet up on my wrist and broke it two days before I was going to go to camp. So uh, they sent me to camp in a, you know, one of those Jewish sports sleepaway camps and I had a cast on and about two days in the camp, I, someone set a pick on me in basketball and I used that cast as a club and I did some other things during the flag football game. So they called up my parents and they said, um, you know, Mrs. Berkowitz, we have a problem. Your son is, is going to probably put someone in the hospital pretty soon if we don't prevent him from playing sports. And she's like, well, he, he can't come home because we're, 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 we have the whole summer planned out without our kids here. And uh, so she said, what can he play? And they said tennis. And she sent me this beyond Borg wooden racket that the strings were made out of like pastry tying string. It was the scariest thing ever. <laughs> and, um, and I started playing and, and I actually took to it pretty, pretty quickly to a degree where someone felt bad for me and said, you know, there's this thing called graphite rackets and they lent me a graphite racket. So, uh, so I came to play tennis after that. And so tennis and soccer were my thing. And I did end up playing, uh, uh, tennis for Brandeis and, uh, and I ran track there as well. Yeah. So I, <clears throat> I played in high school. My mom used to drop me off at six o'clock in the morning for practice for the tennis team in high school. So yeah, I yeah. can relate. But well, I wasn't like the traditional tennis. I tried to make it a contact sport. I got in a lot of fights over line calls and stuff. So, uh, definitely it was, it took a little getting used to the politeness. In fact, I was at a tournament once early on in playing and I caught a ball that was going out because there was no fence and I didn't feel like chasing it. And it was like at a crucial moment. And they're like, that's not your point. And I was like, what? They're like, you can't touch the ball till it lands. There's an etiquette to it. You have yeah, there's, to- <laughs> I learned it now, you know, now, now I'm more polished and my kids are, are learning the right way. But yeah, for me, I just got thrown in there. Yeah. I played, I played hockey. I'm from Philly and I played hockey. Yeah, of course. A kid. So, that's the uh, tattoos explain it all. You look like a hockey player. I could see, you You know, you just have to affect a Canadian accent. <laughs> Oat, a boat. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I got kicked out of two leagues for fighting. That was the whole thing. But a small was, guys, man, it's the, it's the Napoleonic complex. It's, it's, it's that. And plus I came from a pretty abusive household. So I had all this anger. Like it was, and, and then, and then the thing that really perpetuated is when I get in a fight, I come home and my dad was like proud of me and he never was proud of me before for anything else. Yeah. So it perpetuated. So I can get my aggression out. And my dad's proud of me and I'm getting some love, which I never really did. Yeah, that's funny. That's a, that's, I think that's a, well, everyone has their own unique experiences. For me, sports was definitely an outlet for, you know, the, the early childhood stuff, not really knowing my biological father, having an older brother who was very gracious and let me tag along meant I spent a lot of time playing sports with older kids. And so even though I was small, I, I was very tough, um, which, which helped. 
In fact, my mom, when we first moved out to Long Island, there was no soccer league for five-year-olds. So she lied and said, I was seven. So two years later, when she still bring me to the league, they're like, because at the first year, they're like, your son is a really small seven-year-old. And they didn't do the math because my brother was seven at the time too. But after two years, they're like, how is your son still seven? And she's <laughs> like, yeah, I might've fudged the, the numbers a little bit. And I mean, the first year I was like, there's a, a great soccer picture, like an old team picture. It's like height is like this. <laughs> you can't even, <laughs> my head almost drops out of the team picture. Yeah, I was short too. I'm I'm, I'm five eight. Yeah, uh, but I was not that I tall was, now. But you're tall. Yeah, but I was, but I was, I was definitely like the shorter guy in in school all the time. But you're right about the speed. Yeah, yeah, it, speed helps. Yeah. So um, then, after you graduated, you decided to go to law school. Was that something that? Uh, was I that mean, something I always loved you- history. You know, I I love the theoretic elements of of law, which would surprise no one to know how I invest and how I do, because it's always like, I love the theory of it. Um, Not sure I want to practice, but I, and law school definitely cured me of that ailment, but uh, I definitely love the theoretical elements, the discussions, and um, especially going to to law school in the time was like the Clinton era, kind of 96. And that was an interesting time because there was a lot of legal battles that had never had real, you know, discussion, like, Bill Clinton getting in trouble for over like what he said in court. And so there were a lot of great discussions that were contemporary. You know, people were a lot of lost cases. So it was a great time to go to law school, but I, I just didn't love, I never, I think as a young kid, I was like an entrepreneur, even I, I used to sell like lollipops. So it never really occurred to me to like work for an hourly wage. And so, you know, being a billing lawyer was, and I didn't, and then right out of law school, I was helping to build uh, automated trading kind of technology. So I, really never set foot in a law in a law firm. So that's what I wanted to ask you, like how you, and I, and I know I have a couple of friends of mine. One, one guy, I remember he was going to law school. He's like, I'm like, you want to be a lawyer? He goes, no, 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 no. Getting, getting, becoming a lawyer, like uh, that's licensed, licensed to print money. So when he came out, he became a sports agent. And I dealt, when I was a commercial real estate broker, so I dealt with a lot of lawyers doing real estate, but not, not like a litigating attorney. So how, how did you kind of, combine this whole, I want to do investment or investment banking, but you're, you're had a, you know, you're attorney basically. Yeah. Well, as a kid, I, I, my parents used to have to sign off. I I had a Royce trading account when I was like 12 and my parents would have to sign up in these trades. And and actually one of the first trades was in a company that eventually became HGSI, the the genome sequencing company. So I always loved investing in stocks and I, I, you know, you go to the paper and it would you'd have to go to the New York times or whatever and read. And yet it wasn't like real time feed. So it was more like thoughtful. And and I liked doing that. But then um, my brother was a trader and my brother and I very close, went to college together, um, always best friends. And, you know, to this day still speak a lot on the phone and and when, when we don't see each other, but uh, him and one of my best friends were trading. They were, they were the original SOS bandits that were trading using the first kind of automated trading uh, technology and I was in a stats class in law school, and we were learning some very basic coding around like Lotus Notes, which was you know the predecessor to Excel. And I kind of was fascinated with the fact that trading seemed like a very unscalable thing. Like I'm the kind of person who, if you and I were walking somewhere, I'd look at like something and almost try to think of like how the business model works, like a hot dog vendor or whatever. And so I was kind of thinking like. You know, Ameritrade was a new technology, but I didn't understand how you could trade in real time more than one stock or two stocks at a time because these computers were just so many things were moving. And even if no matter how attuned your eyes got. So I said to my brother, you know, what if you could 
kind of download the information that you're using to, to make successful trades and replicate it. And so I started to build like a, a thesis around it and, and look at technology that was kind of around that. And it just so happened that in New York at that time, other people were working on just that at an institutional scale. And so right after law school, my brother was living in downtown Boston and trading and my, my best friend who ended up ironically being my partner in cannabis. Um, but, uh, we, we just wanted to figure out technological ways to scale. And then it, it kind of came with the other technologies being developed. So it was the right time, right place. And for a few years, it was a great run until they decimalized um, the, the market and made, you know, because at, at one point there was this artificially large spread between the bid and the ask that allowed you to literally print money. And then um, when that compressed, I ended up as the, the deputy general counsel of, uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of trading platforms being built and I ended up at a place that was revolutionizing bond trading and turning it electronic. And they wanted someone who really understood the technology, but also had a law degree. So I was doing like NDAs and licensing and data, but I was also, you know, doing some basic legal stuff. But the understanding train platform, that company market access has now went on to massive success by revolutionizing bond trading. And then that kind of set me on a legal path for a while. And then in 2010, uh, after I had already been looking at cannabis, I ended up at a family office. And um, they were looking for all esoteric investments and cannabis was the ultimate esoteric to me. I had a friend who had lived out in Colorado uh, because he had been uh, tragically injured and was using CBD and, and cannabis for his own pain. And um, by 2012, uh, you know, we were deep in it and Connecticut said, we're going to give out four licenses. And um, one thing I knew is how to write a public filing and how to do stuff. I felt like I was going to be better at the ministerial elements. And this was going to be ministerial. So all the people we were talking to that wanted to apply for this Connecticut license, which was the first of its kind, were talking about how great they were as growers. And I was kind of talking to, you know, internally, I'd whisper to, to my partners and say, the regulators don't care about that. They care about like whether it's going to get stolen or so we wrote, you know, a 1900 page application that was almost exclusively focused on medicine and, and, um, security and preventing diversion and all these things. And, you know, ultimately it was the highest scoring application by a, a long stretch. And then within weeks, people kind of understood what happened in Connecticut. We started getting inundated with requests to go out to other states that were thinking about this process. So it, you know, it, there is, there's a flow there, a natural flow. I'm not sure if it's a linear flow, but it, one thing I've always been able to do. And even when I was working um, on, on wall street, I was able to moonlight and write patents for startup technology companies. So I did a lot in the ad tech and music tech uh, space. And so I always have been able to really luckily engage my passionate side and stick with the things, you know, do a little bit of the things I love because the, the legal side engaged a lot, I'd say a lot more right brain. And um, I've always been able to engage both sides of my brain, you know, just luckily. And, and I think you have to work at that. And so I think I bring that to cannabis too, is, you know, a very kind of, um, I look at something and I roll it around and try to, look for alternative ways of monetizing or other things. And, and I'm lucky that I've been able to, to grow an organization that's filled with people who, who offer alternative um, ideas and, and also do so respectfully without any personal attachment to the idea so that we end up with a really good um, information flow and stuff. So I'm lucky. I feel really, really, really grateful for what I've been able to, to do in life and, and to, I think, you know, the most important thing when I see people that are like working in an office and they're not uh, completely engaged, it really, it really does affect me. I, I try to offer that person, 
you know, just make sure you're doing things other than your family. Like you should, you should love your family should come first always before work and stuff. But on the work side, I mean, it is something you do eight to 10 hours a day. And if you love it and it engages you the right way, you're just a better person to everyone around you. And so I'm, I'm lucky that I've always lived in a very harmonious way. Even when I was doing legal work that was extremely difficult in stressful situations, uh, I think I've done enough of the passion stuff to, to stay somewhat unaffected by that. Uh, super important. I, I completely agree with you. Eight to 10 hours. If you're, if you're an entrepreneur, if you own your own business, you're working like 15 hour days. But so if that's the case, if that's, but you got to love it. I mean, when, when did I stop? I mean, I would, I'd go home, work, you know, hang out with my kids and then they go to sleep and then I work another five or six hours because things need to be written. And if you remember, I, I, I was kind of early on the content creation side. I kind of understood at a, at a fundamental level that content creation was a way to evangelize ideas that I thought need to be discussed. And cannabis didn't really have a, a machine for the velocity of information in 14, 15, 16. And I really thought there were some ideas that were just not being explored. And the best way to explore them was to write about things, which really ended up becoming a magnet for people to then say, you know, I read something you wrote. If you're interested in this, here's an idea. And in a lot of ways, I was able to shortcut the looking for things by speaking about it. And then, you know, it's like Sun Tzu, instead of being a mountain, be a valley, you know? So the valley collected a lot of water early on for me. Well, I, and, and just to go back to what you were saying, it, it's difficult to be an entrepreneur anyway. And if you are not passionate about it, you're going to leave after eight hours or whatever it is, and you're going to go back and it's going to, it's going to hinder your success and about the office job thing. So my best friend, he's in the, uh, he's in the accounting space, let's just say, and uh, like with JPMC and all these companies and he keeps, he's miserable. And he's always, and he leaves his job and he gets another job in the same thing. So I said, I said, why don't you just take your skill set and apply it to an industry that you're passionate about? He's like, well, I love playing hockey. I'm like, well, you're in your fifties. You're not going to play hockey anymore, you know, professionally, but can you apply this uh, to sports or something else? And he's like, there's, there's like a fear. The release you can get from hockey is, you know, it's fleeting. So when you think of like oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, the three things that kind of control our, how we feel you, you need to, I mean, I think the Eureka moment when they talk about our oxytocin, like when we have a discussion and people are vibing on that, you have a lot of oxytocin, which is a, a pretty important chemical that isn't always as present as we need it to be. And I think what happens is people they're, they're think of it like lily pads in a, in a, in a lake. Eventually there's, you're going to fall in the water if you're just jumping from a lily pad to a lily pad. And I think if you're not engaging your intellectual side in something you're really happy about, there's going to be outbursts and there's going to be things. And so for me, I always definitely poured a little water out of the, the work cup to leave a little room for things I was excited about or, you know, read about. And, and for me, cannabis has been the perfect confluence of uh, energetic innovation and uh, free form white space creationism, you know, all these things that, you know, how we came to meet, you know, on the personalized medicine side, but it's really allowed me to pursue these things. And, and like I said, I feel really lucky that I'm surrounded by people that also have a deep intellectual curiosity. And um, you just don't want that. That, that is a, it's a muscle and, and you have to exercise that muscle if you want it to grow. And if you don't exercise it, what happens is when you, like you said, if, if you're not passionate about what you're doing, when you come to a tough moment, you almost have a fight or flight response. Whereas if you love what you're doing and something difficult comes, you start to think of it more holistically, where 
does a solution fit in the greater context of, you know, it's not just any solution. It's a solution that fits best. And I, so I do think, you know, and, 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 and I, I talk a lot about being a happy warrior and stuff. And I do think happy warriors tend to be um, better warriors and, and, you know, warriors metaphorically, like if you want to use the example of our contemporary times, I don't think what Russia is doing, rounding up people at gunpoint and putting them on a battlefield is probably not how you're going to get the most effective warriors. So, um, you know, the Romans didn't do it. You should learn from history, right? The Romans, they, they, they took the Germanic tribes and pushed them back into Rome. They, they turned them into Romans. They got them passionate about the Rome before they let them fight. Well, it's got to be, there's got to be something you connect. Like it's the Afghans, like fighting the Russians for years and winning because they had a purpose and you know, they connected to it. I completely yeah. agree with you on that. Um, so how did private, like how did private equity happen from there? And what, what is a private equity fund? What does that even mean? Yeah. So I'll start with what it is. A private equity fund is, it, there's a lot of different ways to invest. So you can invest in stocks, which is typically like a long, short equity fund or a hedge fund. Private equity means you're, you're typically investing in companies privately and you hold those equities with a, for a longer trajectory. Uh, so it can be loans, convertible, but typically you're buying the riskiest component of companies and helping them grow so that they can you know, pay off. So you need a longer trajectory. How I got in it was, I mean, I built, so I, I had moved to a family office in 2010, but had been helping friends out in Colorado and then won this license. And by 2016, well, really 15, I'd won a bunch of licenses in, in some of the most restrictive markets. And I felt like there were, there were so many companies that we went to, to buy vape carts or equipment or you know, grow medium or um, to, for construction. And I felt like the, the capital that the, we were spending all this money and getting, we were getting great service or tools in response, but a company would offer something and you go, gosh, that's cool. And then the company would say, you know, the problem is we're so small, we can't grow. And I started to realize that, okay, the grow side was one side, but the picks and shovels was, was really growing quite quickly and, and also was still immature and could use, because I had had a lot of grow ownership, I could direct a lot of business to these companies and really help them grow, not just with money, but with actual business. And, uh, and, that, and that, again, the intellectual curiosity of building companies, the, the, the chance to work with people who um, were working in, you know, looking for business and going state to state and trying to convince people that this new technology or this new tool was direct for cannabis, to me, seemed like a, a great way to, to grow. Um, so I, I went around to a bunch of people and said, um, you know, let's, let's build a vehicle that allows us, instead of every transaction being like, hey, let's do more and more. And, and obviously, GrowGen was one of the early ones, Grow Generation, which became a, a major success. When they first came to me, it seemed like such a no-brainer. Um, people are going to build a ton of facilities. They need to fill those facilities with equipment. They need to spend a lot of money. They spend it up front and no one could provide it at industrial scale. So what they were doing is people were going to grow supply stores and, you know, custom rigging things. Yeah. Now I remember it. And and then when uh, I think it was Kushko or uh, Kush bottles at first. So Nick, I remember when we had dispensaries, we would go to Kush bottles, get the bags, get the bottles. I was like, man, how do you scale this? And that's, uh, you know, I had Nick on before my podcast and he was yeah. telling me this whole story too. Yeah. And also, I mean, that, that was another thing that really intrigued me was 
the the multiple components obviously the illegality of cannabis becoming legal is you know the fact that you have a definable market of 100 billion or more that was eventually going to become legal was interesting i think the other part was the subscale nature that people in these businesses are running it seems so in inefficient and you know capital could create some of that efficiency but so could some of the structure that i had building legal teams and building companies uh and investing my whole life so it felt like a, a natural confluence, but also when you go, like when you look at packaging, the fact that cannabis required idiosyncratic packaging for each company, they, everyone wanted to differentiate themselves in childproofing. It's not like a, a pill bottle, right? It was, it was freshness and all these new things that need to be built for this industry. And that seemed like a massive opportunity. And also just all these new ideas that people would come with and you, you, you say, oh, that's an amazing idea. And then you have to sell that idea, like almost like an investment banker. That's not attractive to me. So I want to be a principal that would help make these decisions. And also, I mean, just the pure fact that I was one of the first people that most people knew to be in cannabis. So I was getting hundreds of decks a month with no structure to even review these people. Everyone was sending an idea my way. Oh, what do you think? A friend is doing this. And um, I, I wanted to have a more systematized way to review these. So what I started doing is kind of like taking keywords out of them, putting them into a software and kind of reviewing what was interesting. Um, and then, you know, that kind of was the underpinning of Merida's early investment theory, which was like, Hey, we only have five people. How are we, why are we looking at 500 deals a month? Because I was using this software to score applicate, uh, to score these decks and sort of the stuff that had no chance. I was still collecting information on it, but it, it, there were th- certain things like, for instance, if early on your marketing and SGNA was just too high, like. You just weren't going to get investment from us. But so I was using things to look for shortcuts to to look at as many things as possible. That's really interesting. You created a scoring system, like a scorecard that lets you get like a clip note version of the deck. Yeah. And and you know what? There were times where I loved a company and the scorecard was like, no. And so whenever there was a a divergence between what I felt instinctually might work versus scorecard, it made me. So I started to build individual like lines that had scoring. So it would say. For instance, you know, by 2017, there were a lot of cannabis CEOs who were now like an investor who just took over. And to me, that's like a detriment because it's one thing if it's a mature company, when a company needs to be built on passion and usually investors are investing in the other management team. So when that person takes over, they may not have the longstanding knowledge and stuff. And so that, that to me was like a negative score. And so I started to build in like elements that were more manual but that made sense. And so over time, really, it did filter out a lot of, it started to become more of a filtering mechanism rather right. than a pure scoring itself. So is there a state or a country, is there anybody that has it, they're doing it kind of right? I know that it's still not fairly legal in the US, uh, but is there a model that says, okay, this is interesting. This is something that we can ex- aspire to sort of be. You mean from the investment standpoint or company? I mean, or? From, from, from the fact that this, this uh, country or this state has the right sort of uh, approach to legalities, to the way that they're supporting yeah. the market. Like, like Brazil, for instance, I'll give you an example. Like Brazil said, okay, and I'm not saying that they're the right way to do it. I'm just saying, okay, they came up with a system. The doctor goes in or prescribes you cannabis. It gets sent electronically to a pharmacy and you go pick up your cannabis at a pharmacy. 
and then you have to see the patient again. Like Germany has this model where they get reimbursed by insurance and it's all, you know, so is there anybody that's out there that's like- No one's perfect. Example? And, and, right. and, and my opinion on what's right has changed over time. So there were certain programs, like I think the Florida program has been great for getting engagement and help making it easy. But at the same time, the fact that you're tethered to a dispensary uh, isn't optimal necessarily. And so what, what often when I notice that something's all these in, in idiosyncratic elements, I, that's where I explore. That's really where I spend my time you know, intellectually engaging because I find it interesting. I do think states that have made it easy for people to get medical cards um, because it's not reimbursed. So it, it, whether or not you think it's breaking some paradigm of healthcare, it's not really a choice. I mean, that's like saying someone, I mean, they use Advil. So that's their choice when they go into a pharmacy and use non-prescription strength drugs. You know, there used to be Vioxx and Celebrex and all these things, but some people chose to to do non-opioid medicines. How is cannabis any different? But so I I do think one emerging country where we're going to be heavily involved is Costa Rica, which is interesting because not only are they really interested in the medical side. And so they've, they've basically said, if you think it's going to be effective for your conditions, we'll support it. They have a socialized medical system, so it will be reimbursed. But also at the same time, they felt like the, uh, the irony of having an illegal market on the adult use side, but a legal medical side is not convergent in a way that helps them. So they actually have filed adult use at the same time, essentially. So I think that's actually a better way to think of it because you don't, people may be hesitant to go into a medical program if they think they're going to be in a registry. Now in Costa Rica, they're reimbursing. That's interesting. But I do think it's good. It should either be legal or like, obviously medical is better than illegal, but it does make a lot of sense to have both available. If people want to use it or otherwise, it should be treated much closer to alcohol than, than people think. Um, but I don't think anyone's perfect. I mean, I used to think that, uh, Illinois had a great program when they flipped the switch on adult use, but then it took two years to get social equity licenses. And so every state has had missteps. Um, I do think the federalist system in the United States has led to some insane results, uh, that, you know, create value for people like Merida. So I'm not going to complain about it. It look, the world is what it is. We just operate within it the best we can. But at the same time, I think it's been really interesting to watch all of these different people will say, you know, you you like one, two, three, we're going to do two, three, and eight. And so there is this sense of every state having to put their own twist on it. I'm not sure I love that so much. I think a lot of states have, have taken a really laborious approach to something that, that could be somewhat simple. Yeah, like California. Well, I mean, California's biggest problem was about implementation around big state, you know, California's nine different states, right? Yeah. It's like the, yeah, the middle or Sacramento is where there's no dispensaries. You have, you know, the, the birthplace of cannabis essentially in the, in the, the Emerald Triangle. And then you have Southern California and then you have San Diego. But um, again, we just play with the rules that we're given. How did COVID affect the cannabis industry? Well, I think it helped it for a lot of ways. Number one, it, uh, anything that locks people in, it, we now know that alcohol is a much more social drug cannabis is more of an you know an individualistic drug where people really don't mind consuming it for sleep so we did learn a lot of people it's not the sociality per se it's the i'm using it for things that i do alone sleep pain 
even if it's in an adult use, it's self-medication of some sort, whereas alcohol tends to be consumed in greater volume socially. So, so it really helped the cannabis industry. It also started to usher in the new era of better regulatory response, better regulatory um, understanding, because it was seen as medicine. So it was seen as an essential business. And so curbside and, and delivery, which hadn't been allowed in virtually any, I mean, Denver, which is the, the home of mature cannabis adult use, didn't have delivery till recently. And COVID definitely accelerated that. So I think it did a lot of things. And it also put a big crimp in the adult use, I mean, in the black market or illegal market, which really helped sales. Now, the, the, uh, the illegal market has roared back to life. But, um, but for a little while, for just a little while, uh, the legal market was, was growing at, at stratospherically unbelievable rates. But all of that was a transition from the illegal market. So do you foresee that there will be like two parallel paths? There'll be a medical where pharma is going to get involved and do like the epidiolics types of products. Yeah. And then there'll be like this other, as you mentioned, alcohol type of, or nutraceutical. You see like two parallels. Well, and, I think there's and, four paths that, okay. that cannabis probably takes, you know, and, and um, I know what you think because of what you do. Um, and we agree on the medical side. I think the medical side is going to move from medical cannabis to cannabis-based medicines. So let's call that the, the highly pharma route. Then you have the nutraceutical plant-based wellness route, which is, which is really different than pharmaceuticals, right? Which are engineered products. Mm-hmm. And then you have the consumer aspect. I just, want to, I just want to use it, right? And then I think the fourth aspect is what I would consider like an adjacency, which is um, CBD and it, as a product that gets combined and cross-pollinated with other products. Uh, so that, I mean, I really do think, and, and, you know, in each of those, I, I'm trying to use obviously four very wide buckets within each of those, there's probably 20 subcategories of things that you could go. Yeah. I kind of agree with you. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm just tired of the days where they got to stop advertising CBD pillows and CBD underwear. I mean, it's, it's gotten to, a point yeah, I've always worried about that. I, like a CBD pillow is just made out of hemp or, I mean, if, if you spray CBD on a pillow it, within two days, it's gone. I, I don't. I don't get it either, but I do like hempcrete and like stuff that well, you make out of hempcrete's uh, that, my. It's great. I, I, love I, I stick that into a tweet every two weeks or so. All right, so good, good segue. Let's 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 talk about that uh, content. So you are actually providing and producing your own social media content. This is you actually yeah. that's tweeting. It's not somebody that's working for. No, right? no. And, and we have a lot of guys on the team, guys, guys being inclusive of our, our ladies as well. People, right. People on the team will send me ideas. And what I'll try to do is make a list of like 50 things I think are interesting and haven't been well spoken about. So we try to, we try to tweet things that are, um, again, it's that same, we, we can only write three or four of those long form data pieces a year because there's so much work and we have a shareholder reporting cycle. You know, we report to our shareholders rigorously. Um, so it's a way of letting people know what we're interested in so they can come up with ideas. And we get a lot of DMs and calls based on tweets we sent. Hey, I saw you tweet about this company or this idea. So in one side, we try to tweet about ideas that we think haven't been fully fleshed out in the public's form in a way that's you know, uh, productive for the industry. Sometimes every once in a while, we'll hold someone accountable for something we just think is ridiculous. We don't do that as much anymore because... While we don't look, people say negative stuff about us on Twitter every once in a while. It's like that's life, right? 
Um, you know, Kanye said it best, which is uh, in, in Power, his song, which has one of the best first four lines you'll ever hear in a song. But, you know, screams from the haters have a certain ring to it, you know, and every superhero needs their own theme music. And oh, well. So um, so we try to be real and honest about that. So, you know, in the early days, like we called out the MedMen stuff before a lot of other people were doing that. Um, but we don't do that as much anymore because we think there's so much original stuff to discuss that. And so I'll make a list of 50 things. And, you, you know, you want to be able to think through what's being written. So when I have time, if I have like a half hour, I'll kind of browse Twitter pretty quickly, maybe, you know, like something or, or respond to something I think is interesting and then write three or four original tweets. So, so if you notice, it usually comes in bursts. And that's because we're not spending a lot of time on it. We're not looking at Twitter and Twitter's not real life. And, and everyone on Twitter has got to realize that you can, your Twitter, what you're doing on Twitter is communicating. Um, and what you're doing in real life is building, like for us, is building companies. So, you know, like if we like something or, uh, or don't like it, or, you know, I wish you had a don't like button in Twitter because that thing would get, I'd be smashing that thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, because, but, but everyone's wants something so ridiculous that we feel the need to have a laugh about it. But, you know, generally it's a tough space to, to operate in and the more fluidity you can have with ideas. So the fact that we have a pretty good Twitter following allows us to put out ideas, get ideas back. And so it's really been a, a, a huge efficiency tool for us. Um, and I also think it's, it's a way to, you know, have receipts. We, we've predicted things that we've been very fortunate to predict things that have come true. I think we do the work to, to have our facts straight. But for instance, I think I, I, as far as I know, we were one of the first people to say the lame duck period would be a period of potential cannabis reform because we saw the political, you know, we read deep into polling and other political aspects. And so we, we saw the cross tabs on certain things. And we said, it looks like the Republicans are, are going to take Congress, um, at least the House, which I think is almost a sure thing at this point. And even on the Senate, it feels to me like if you look at the polling and how it's done, it's always imperfect. Um, but sometimes it over indexes to things. And I think that our view is the lame duck period. If the Democrats do lose, they have a lot of freedom to do some things in the lame duck period that they may not have done had they held. You know, the problem with holding Congress is it just encourages you to do more of what you're doing. And on cannabis, that's been nothing. So I don't think the Democrats winning actually does anything for cannabis. Yeah. Like people think, hey, if the if the if the Democrats win, doesn't that mean they're going to turn around and fix cannabis? No, it means they will stick to the stuff that has worked for them. And guess what? They haven't done anything about cannabis for 30 years. Why would they do it now if they keep winning? So I actually think losing is good for movement in, in our space. Yeah, I agree with you. I, that's that's definitely. You know, and by the way, I don't even have a political. You can read our, our what we write in our tweets. No one knows our, our true politics because we we politicians who say ridiculous things, whatever their stripe is. And I think generally we're in an era where people have become. I think the the politicians used to be seen as like these virtuous, you know, in the fifties, and then you had JFK, and people didn't discover things about it until the seventies, and and I think now like post Clinton, post social media. The wizard, you know, everyone's seen behind the curtain. And I think a lot of people are very distrustful of politicians generally. And so I, I don't, you know, my view is you can have a good laugh about it. Everyone should be able to look at it and say, regardless of what the letter is before the person's name, if they're doing ridiculous things, they should be called out for it. Nah, agreed. So I heard somewhere that you are an accomplished musician. 
Oh is God, that, is that true? No. You, what what instrument do you play? No, I took up drums a few years back, and I would say that <laughs> to even accomplish is almost comical. And I, <laughs> you know, I know you're a drummer as well, so. I, I don't play, I don't play anything well, but I try to right. play yeah. everything a little um, bit. I can play probably 20 songs mediocrely with a lot of work. I could probably sharpen five of those into something worth listening to. Um, I love it. I love the physicality of it. I love the challenge. Again, I think it's really important to make a little space in your life for things that are difficult and learn, you know, have a learning curve and not be on a level plane. I think, you know, difficulty breeds growth. And, um, and, and I think it also breeds joy because that accomplishment you get from, you know, the first time I went into the drum thing, I was the only adult in there. It was all kids, uh, at, at school of rock, one of the local schools of rock. Oh, you did the school of rock. Yeah. And, um, you know, the teacher was like, what's your goal here? And I'm like, I love music so much. And I've been, you know, I've seen a million concerts. My, my dad's a big audiophile. My sister, my brother were all so obsessed with music. And I just, I don't know. I wanted to touch it more than just listening to it. And, you know, drumming has been great. It's been a great outlet, but accomplished and me drumming <laughs> is the biggest joke ever. I would say, you know, I don't know if you know the song Seven Asian Army by the White Stripes. Uh, that's probably my best song. And I would say that that is the, the I think the person who drums it, I, I think it's Jack's sister who drums it in the song. And she learned it that day and had never even drummed before. So I wouldn't call that a difficult song. Um, you know, I'm pretty good at a uh, highway to hell too. By yeah, you can keep time. You can keep time. Yeah. My, well, with some know, fills here and there, a lot of, well, what I would say is um, drumming is interesting because there's only so many things you can do on beat. So when you start to get better, you start to, it slows down a little bit and you're like, okay, I get it. Um, but I remember, you know, I never thought of ZZ top as a particularly complex musical until you start playing the drums and you go, gosh, and like sharp dressed man is not a difficult song. And by the way, the words of that song would not pass muster in today's age, other than maybe in a rap song. It's funny how in the eighties, like the music was kind of racy from a, yeah. um, but you know, that song's tar- hard to play. You, you, you're oh, Frank Beard is great, man. It's very underrated as a Yeah. Drum. Yeah. Completely. So I have a total different appreciation for music and, and you know, it's actually brought a lot of joy for that appreciation. So you, I don't know if you front, but you guys have a Merida band, right? Oh my God, and, you're killing and us. You, no. And you, and you, I think, create the set list, if I'm not mistaken. Is that is that true? And then you make fun of me for wearing my 90s uh, rock tees. So I wanted to understand your musical influences for making these oh. set lists. Oh, man. <laughs> um, well, you know, so interestingly, the music I love the most growing up wouldn't be appropriate probably for drumming. So we had a corporate party and two of my partners drum, uh, play guitar. One plays lead and one plays the bass. My brother actually was a good singer. He doesn't work for Merida, but he's a great singer um, and had a great band called Mucka Ferguson back in uh, at Brandeis. And um, so uh, the set list was based on nineties. Like, there's no more rock. So while I would love to play like a Smith song or Morrissey or Radiohead, those aren't drum songs. And so the set list was geared towards like 90s grunge. It was Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, like songs that everyone would know. Um, songs that could be sung very easily. Uh, Seven Nation Army by White Stripes. Um, we, we noodled over doing potentially a Pearl Jam song, but gosh, I just could not do it. They could. And I, you know, I was killing it. Um, but we ended up with a, a Bush song. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it set the world on fire. It was fun. I think everyone had a gas. The funny thing is, Meredith's best drummer is our compliance, our general counsel and chief compliance officer, Rishi, is yeah. an insanely good drummer, which I have to note, took my electronic drum kit that I have in my basement, sort of the, you know, like the stuff, it's, it's like material, so it doesn't have the drumming, but it threw an amp. And he played it after we played and uh, he collapsed it in a way it's never been the same. I haven't been able to get it to stand up the same way. I don't know what he did to it, but I literally can't get the drum kit to ever stand up the same way. I every, every day I have to stop from falling down now. So thanks Rishi. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, we, the Merida band is just about fun. Again, taking this non-traditional approach to work and corporate and, you know, I know other people do it, but for a small organization, we really do try to have a, 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 that happy warrior, like joy in every day. And it was fun learning the songs together. Uh, I always really appreciate like the 80s and 90s, the bands, like the yeah. Peel sessions. So it was a chance to do that. But oh my God, it was raw. I remember one, one part I had to do like a like a transition. And you obviously know that the bassist Mina, and he's really good, but he's looking at me, the drummer. And I did the transition right. And I remember because we had played a bunch together. And I had never gotten this transition right. And the first time I got it right, he looked at me and made like the squish face. Yeah. And I was yeah, like, okay, now I'm getting one. somewhere. You know, he was like, oh, <laughs> he's like, okay, Mitch isn't that terrible. But we're you terrible. got it. Yeah. I'm terrible. Um, well, you know, you, you'll get better. It's, yeah. it's fun anyway, uh, as long as you enjoy it. So what subconsciously, uh, being a Jets fan, do you have uh, like, do you like – masochism in some way do you is there a subconscious element that, <laughs> that runs to that because i think over the last 20 years i think they're the only team that have made the playoffs if i'm not mistaken um i the, the playoffs i want to say the last place probably mark sanchez right did against the, the Colts, and did that might have been 0203 something like that yeah uh, maybe maybe yeah, because right. he, yeah, he, that was the last one right yeah, he went um, to the eagles after that yeah uh, hey look <laughs> he's uh Good old Sanchito. Um, you know, I think. Uh, Can they ever win? That's the question. You know, Jet Can the Jets win? And I'm a Met fan. I mean, no team I like has has won a championship since 1986. The Mets should have won the 15 World Series against Kansas City, but uh, we we blew four games. You well, know, the we, Mets are good now. The Islanders uh, are are. The Islanders were, were ruined by COVID rules last year. But I mean, the truth is, just like other teams that have chronic disappointment. I think you do grow tough. My, my brother turned to me a, a year ago after the, um, the uh, Islanders kind of collapsed in the, remember when they lost to Tampa in the, in the conference finals two years ago and by one, nothing and knowing that you were going to get Montreal in the final. So whoever won out of the East was winning the, the Stanley cup. And he goes, am I a bad dad? Because I make my kids like the same teams I like. And I said, yeah, pretty much. But um, we don't even want to, you know, the Knicks, I can't even root for because I hate the owner. I think the owner, it, it's, it is amazing up until Steve Cohen. Thank you, Steve Cohen, for taking over the Mets. I have a lot of faith in you. You're amazing. But um, it's kind of amazing. And even the guys who own the Islanders are pretty good. Ledecky and crew, amazing owners. But for many years, it was unbelievable that we like teams that almost had these amateurish owners. Like you're New York. How do you not have a real owner? The Wilpons, the, uh, you know. The Johnson family, I don't mind. I don't think they're great at, at running the Jets necessarily. But the, the Will Ponds, the, the Islanders was a, an insane situation with the Wang, with Charles Wang and crew um, and the, you know, the Milsteins. And then, you know, James Dolan. Yeah. So, but do you think, but do you think that this is a combination of like the owners? Yes. Uh, 
they obviously have enough funding in place to get good players in the draft. I mean, yeah. You mean, okay, you, mean will, you mean the Johnsons? I know yeah, you love football. Johnson. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the Jets is an interesting case study in, um, for a long time, was like paralysis by analysis. Like, let's bring in an analytical guy, like that guy from uh, Seattle, who then proceeded to have like the worst four drafts in Jet history. Yeah. But, you know, and, and it always seems like they, they, they get sold on like the analytical heft and then they believe in that person. And I do think they have a great group. They've, they've, been good at they, they've realized now that you have to get good personnel people that can do not only personnel assessment but actually know how to develop that talent better i do like robert sala i don't know if he's the most dynamic coach i do think he's a good coach though in general um they have a great up-and-coming offensive coordinator who does some innovative things but i mean joe flacco has looked better than zach wilson so i'm a little scared this is going to be but the jets the, the jets have been playing on jets like they play tough um, they don't fold and they have a lot of tough people on their roster now, which I appreciate at least. So, um, and they beat the Browns. The Browns were the Jets in that game. That was very Jets-like to lose that way. Yeah. Well, so there's potential. Hopefully. Yeah. And I think, look, I, I say this about the Red Sox fans. They went from never having a championship and being the most miserable fans to having such a cornucopia of wins that they don't even appreciate anymore. When a team wins, they're like, ah, oh, we won another championship. Well, it's like the Phillies. So the Phillies were the losingest franchise of all time. Yeah. From they haven't won since nineteen oh whatever, and then they won, uh, you know, the World Series. It was it two thousand twelve or something? Fourteen. Yeah, with Ryan Howard and all. I'm, baseball is not my least, yeah, yeah, like yeah. favorite out of all yeah. them. So I don't, I don't know. And anybody. the Sixers lost to the Lakers. No one was beating that Lakers team. And um, but but then you also have like the Fires have been kind of junky for a while. So. so yeah, they have seventy since seventy six. I mean, but then the Eagles had the most spectacular out of nowhere win. I mean, you guys won a Super Bowl. Yeah, on you on, a, Super on Bowl. a crazy on a crazy. I know it was like my dad was. I, I called my dad on a play they got from Boise State. Yeah, and and then Brady tried to do the same thing and yeah, couldn't even you know, you know what's come crazy? close to the. You know what I find really intriguing about football, and I I, I was thinking about this. Uh, my son and I were watching sports. A few again, we just analyze everything, you know, but just as discussion points. And what's interesting about that play is I think the teams that have been most successful in the NFL over the last like five years have learned a lot from college. Like it used to be that 20 years ago, people were like, you know what? That works in college because the hash marks are closer. But the reality is find a way to make it work. It's about deception and understanding what you're up against. And I think the NFL teams that have incorporated certain collegiate elements, you know, they, they said to Belichick, I don't know if you've seen the special with, with Belichick and, and Saban. Yeah, it's amazing. Like these two guys talk. Belichick would go to Saban every year and be like, "What do you? What? What is working for you?" Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that Alabama also produces an insane amount of NFL players. So you have this guy picking the brain of a guy who's producing the most NFL ready talent, but in a collegiate system. And that's what makes Belichick. Like I want to be the Belichick of cannabis. I want to be analyzing things and looking at things that ways other people aren't. But so I was looking at my son and I go, you know, here's an interesting thought that I've never heard before. When you think of referees affecting the outcome of games, obviously football is probably one of the greatest, greatest, I'm sorry. In, in, in like soccer, it used to be like a penalty shot, but now you have VAR and people can do analysis. How much many points I, I, this morning, I saw how English soccer, someone does analysis. How much does VAR cost you in points? It's crazy, right? But so think of tennis, a good five set match at like the U S open is 
five hours almost. And, and what made me think about this was Francis Tiafa. He comes out of nowhere. And tennis might be the most gladiatorial of all sports because the referee has no outcome. There is a computer. It shows you a screen. The referee has no outcome on the game. It's you, mano a mano, or woman on woman. It is, it is glad it's it's one on one. There's no outside influence. It's the same conditions. And whereas football, you still have the pass interference bump, the holding. You can go holding on every play. And what made me think about it because we were I was watching Tiafo against Carlos Alcaraz, and the pure humanity of that match. These guys are been they've been out there for five hours. They played eight matches like this over uh, or six matches at that point. Over two weeks. I mean, it is true endurance plus knowing that you have no one to rely on but yourself. And I found that so interesting. And and I'm a tennis player, but it made me, it really, it it really think of another sport where the outcome has no one can affect the outcome. Yeah. I don't think there is any, I mean, I guess. Unless you knock someone out in boxing, you take it. Right. I was going to say, unless it's like boxing or or UFC. Okay. But that's one conditional element of boxing. Right. When it goes to the scorecards. Yeah. There's points. You're right. And there's guys who've been taking, I mean, not anymore necessarily, but Bob Arum and Don King were. I'd be (laughs) shocked if they weren't greasing some palms with some of the decisions. I mean, what about the Olympic decision, Roy Jones Jr.? Yeah. It's one of the craziest things ever. He outpunched the guy 180 to seven and he lost the decision. Yeah. Now you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, so please describe your first experience with cannabis. You know, I don't really talk about my usage ever, but I mean, then again, my kids know, I think that I've consumed it. So I was in high school and, um, a friend of mine was way more into it. And I was always like, Oh, I'm an athlete or, and one time, I don't know. And it, it, the first time I don't think it even hit me. We were, we were sitting on like a outside at some girl's house. And then the second time that would hit me and I felt very lightheaded and was like, and it kind of scared me a little bit. And, you know, the Jewish anxiety kind of kicked in. And for a few weeks or months, I was like, "Uh, I'm not sure that's for me. And then I tried it again. And so I went through a period of like having a little bit of anxiety, but then not. And then, but also having like really interesting thoughts that, um, but I, I wasn't, I, I would say I've never really been a heavy user, uh, at all in my entire life. Um, I always, I always kind of like tried to do everything with, with, you know, in a modest way, no, really haven't had anything other than like exercise. That's probably my one true addiction. Um, but, uh, I, I found it to be fun. You know, I thought that the, the laughter provokes the kind of authentic, I mean, sometimes there, there'll be moments. I remember being in a, in a hotel room in Las Vegas with uh, 10 friends and something happening in the room as we were going to the elevator in, in the Hard Rock when it was first built. So remember, the Hard Rock was like the first cool hotel in Vegas. And we walked, we were in the elevator and people came in and we were laughing. I don't even remember about what. It was, it was probably only funny to us. And it probably wasn't even that funny, but we were high. And the people came in and said something like, we're not even sure what you guys are laughing about, but it's funny too to us. And they were laughing. It's contagious. Like yeah, it's even contagious. the sober people were laughing because it was the middle of the day. And so, you know, that's when I started to realize that this can be really fun. You know, that was it, it. So it took till college till I think I had enough. I think, you know, if used correctly and and if if you if you are on stable ground, you know, a lot of people talk about like the schizophrenia element about like using. I think it just so happens, and I talked to a bunch of psychiatrists about this. 
it seems like schizophrenics happen to gravitate towards cannabis because at one point it can help them. Not necessarily that, it, you know, it just so happens that it's like causation versus correlation. I'm not yeah. sure it causes the schizophrenia as much as people who are prone to it tend to try to use it to mute that. But well, you're, you're hundred percent on point. Yeah. I, I mean, there are genetics associated with, uh, Psychosomatic effects. Yeah. yeah. Psychosis. Schizophrenia can be triggered by anything. Right. And you're right about cannabis, but it's also what type of cannabis do you use and how much THC? Well, this is your, things. this is your bailiwick. Yeah. I mean, this is what yeah, you yeah. do. This is why I appreciate your company so much. You know? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's I, I love that it's element. A, but like I said, if, if, if used in a way that is, if it's adult use, if it's used responsibly at a party or somewhere else and not driving or anything like that, right, right. you know, it can be an, the most amazing thing. And, you know, the, the problem is a lot, some of our population have addiction or habitual issues and it, it, it can become a crush for people. And that's something that concerns me and underage usage is something that concerns me, but I always found my experience with it was very um, healthy, I guess you'd say never did it too much. Never, you know, there were a few times where you go away for a week and like you're with the guy who wakes and bakes and you smoke like five times in a, in a week. And you're like, well, I need to take a step back from this, but I never had a problem doing that. But I, I do think that it can be used correctly, just like anything else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what was the first concert that you ever attended? Oh my God. It was 1986. It was Chicago in Nassau Coliseum with my parents. Um, they the opening band was Till Tuesday, Amy Mann. She had one song, Voices Carry, and Voices Carry. Of course, she waited till the last song to play it because before that, like if she played it first, people would have been like, "Go and get food." Um, and you know, Chicago rocked. You're the inspiration, and uh, yeah. you know, um, uh, and then the second one very closely after my parents again, huge music fans. Um, Hall and Oates. Uh, played right after that. I will say, ironically, I remember smelling something at the concert. <laughs> and my mom turns to my dad and goes, Eugene, someone close to us is smoking weed. <laughs> and I was like, what's at weed? At a concert. Yeah, yeah, I was like, what's weed? Yeah. Um, it, it, it's funny because, uh, um, so my first concert was Pink Floyd oh. at JFK Stadium in How Philly. How old are you? 50. Uh, but this two is years the, apart. You, wait, so you, you went to a Pink Floyd This concert? is the new iteration of Pink Floyd. Yeah. The very first time they got together, momentary lapse of reason without Roger Waters. Sure, sure. They still yeah. called themselves. But what Pink year Floyd. was this? 84? So you were 84. a 14 year old at a Pink Floyd concert? Yeah. So my dad. Wow. So I went with my, my dad, his brother, and my two friends. And this JFK Stadium, 100,000 people, it's gone now. And this is the first time that I actually had a joint pass to me all around the stadium. After this, my dad said he hated the experience and never, ever, ever took me to another concert again. But it was a great wait, 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 When the joint was passed to you, where, where was yeah. your dad? Uh, so he was sitting in front. Him and my uncle were sitting in front. And me and my friends were sitting right behind him on bench seats. So was that also so your first around. cannabis experience? No. Oh. At 14? <laughs> yeah. Hey, no judgments here. <laughs> no, I, I, so my first cannabis experience is I have ADD and I was hanging out with these kids uh, and they were dabbling in cigarettes. And they asked me if I wanted to smoke a cigarette. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll, you know, I'll hang out with cooler kids. And, and then they, they had one cigarette and they passed around, there was four of us and they passed around, got to me. So I took a drag of the cigarette and tasted weird. And I kind of coughed a little bit and took another one and they were laughing at me. So they filled the cigarette with weed and I went back to class and all the windows are open in my head. 
they sort of shrunk and I could focus. I'm like, wow. Yeah, this definitely. Interesting. There was an article yesterday about how ADD might be the, the biggest, uh, the biggest beneficiary of, you know, Oh, it's, it's a hundred percent works. Uh, what was, what was the last concert you, uh, attended? I went to, um, I saw three concerts recently. One was counting crows, which was not good. They, they've really fallen off a cliff. Um, Mizio, which I thought was the greatest thing ever. And, um, Gosh, the Lumineers, uh, oh, who were amazing at the the old tennis stadium, the old USTA tennis tennis stadium, which is a phenomenal venue, an outdoor venue in New York, you know, where they used to play the US Open, which is now just grass courts. So, so this summer was good for for live music for me. Yeah, you you were telling me before, like uh, some bands. So what if you were going to share something that people really didn't uh, hear about? Uh, well, I think Mizio is like a very underappreciated band. Maniskin, I think, is just blowing up. I mean, that's real rock. Um, uh, I think groups like, uh, gosh, I still imagine Dragons. I have a huge soft spot for them. I really do. I just think they make good music. Um, love, love, love. Um, I think the Lumineers really shocked me. I didn't realize how many other songs I knew. Um I, I do like, you know, I still like Pearl Jam on my XM, you know, Pearl Jam Alt Nation, which, you know, you find out about bands like I, the Silver Sun Pickups. I'm not sure you've ever heard of them. Oh, of course. I think Group Love is a completely underappreciated. Uh, everyone listens. I go to them. Who do you think is singing? A man or a woman? It's because their voices are so androgynous, but so good. Um, uh, I really like those groups. Oh, gosh, you put me on the spot. It's terrible. Uh, who's on my rotation now? Oh. You know what? When I'm, I'm running, it just kind of goes. It just keeps. Yeah, going. yeah, yeah. You, you, it's hard to remember, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, you, you gave some good ones. Yeah. Uh, what, what has cannabis meant in your life? From a substance, or for work, or for however you want to answer. I truthfully, the industry and its its nascency, and the chance to meet people like yourself or other creative people, work with people, professionals that are are really passionate. It's definitely one of the substances on earth that people are passionate about in a way that kind of blew me away, especially because I didn't grow up in the culture. Um, I, it's really given me an amazing, a chance to pursue what I really love building companies, entrepreneurship, um, to build something that helps people, brings medicine into their lives, democratizes their healthcare in a way that, uh, I think people really underappreciate how much cannabis has brought to people who don't want to use opioids or are scared of prescription drugs and the self-medication that goes on. Um, I've always been a, a big skeptic of, of big healthcare. And like you said before, the 95% solution, which is if you walk into a doctor and he says, hey, you probably have this, this, or this, it's great if you have that. If you're outside the margins, you could really be on your own when it comes to healthcare in this country. And so, um, you know, having that, the ability to really, especially in a place like Minnesota, where we got these medical licenses that were so crucial to people's healthcare. So it's really brought a, a fulfillment helping doing well, doing while doing good. Um, the economic imperative is obviously there and really the chance to work with some of the most incredible people, other funds who, who I, you know, have really like respect what they're doing, the chance to share ideas. Uh, it's really been the, it's, it's been the joy of a lifetime. I couldn't imagine that this could ever, that I could ever love work this much. Obviously it's a very difficult time in space and it's been harder, but it, you know, easy accomplishing great things isn't easy. And, you know, growth comes from those difficult moments. And so it's, it's a good time to fail forward. It's anyone can say all the buzzwords. I love challenge. Okay. 
Now's the time in cannabis. You know that as much as anyone. Now is the time to show all these platitudes. Can you live it? And, and I think, you know, we, we're consistent as being happy warriors. But yeah, it's really meant the world to me. It's, it's meant deep friendships, deep lasting business relationships, the chance to evangelize for a substance that's been demonized, the chance to invest in minority owned companies and minority, co- you know, undo the war on drugs, which is the most insane policy, probably the biggest policy failure in, you know, the history of mankind. Um, so it's been, it's been a lot. Love it. Yeah. I, I can't right. undermine it. Final, final bonus question. Sure. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Well, in Queens, it was a small condo. So I'm going to describe my real growing, like my stony room. So me and my brother shared a room, which was good because I was kind of scared of the dark as a kid. So um, it, it had a, the beds were in L. So every once in a while, my brother's head was around my mid waist. And um, so if, if I had eaten beans or something, he really suffered. But um, yet one wall was all desks. My parents, my mom's a teacher. Uh, she taught in the Bronx. And, um, and my dad was not like a, an entrepreneur and he had a small company. So academics and reading were, were a big focus. So we had these desks. Um, it wasn't clean. And I had a poodle who had not been fixed. And he really, really, really enjoyed bundling up our covers and then kind of going to town on it. And so my brother and I would play the game, like switching each other's covers. Be like, You're like, my, my cover's wet. Why is that? And then you, so my brother was like, oh, did you switch the covers? And I'm like, yeah, he's like, I already switched them on you. So it was, it was, it was a little bit, you know, it was a really, it, it wasn't the, you know, it wasn't the most luxurious lifestyle, but we, I grew up in a family with a lot of love, very, very close Jewish family, uh, but my room, Doc Gooden K signs on the wall. Um, not a lot of jets to like in the eighties, the eighties were, you know, Ken O'Brien was our poster boy and man. So not a lot of, a lot of Mets and, uh, and Patrick Ewing stuff, but, um, there were a lot of books I, I read voraciously as a kid, uh, which I still do. Um, so yeah, it was it was a little bit messy. What, what did your room look like as a kid? I'm kind of scared to even think of that. <clears throat> so my room looked like I had a bed that had a bed underneath. I forget what it's called. Oh, the uh, captain's out. bed. Captain's yeah, bed. Yeah, I had one of those so my, like friends could sleep over. Uh, and I had a desk, and I had uh, I had a Freddy Krueger poster on the back of my door because I got super scared of Nightmare on Elm Street. And, that, and I always try to overcome my fear by like diving right into it. So I'm like, I'm just putting it on my back, wow, back of my great. door. So I did that so I could overcome everyone that. Everyone has a movie. I, I'm curious. Everyone has a movie that scared them. For me, The Shining made me oh, not yeah. want to ever be in a, a, a floor of my house by itself. Like I wouldn't go in the basement by myself. I wouldn't go upstairs by myself. What was the movie that just, was that the movie that killed you? No, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the very first one. I was way too young to see that. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that it was. And the thing that scared me the most of it, when they said it was based on true story. So it wasn't just fantasy. It was like, holy shit, people like that actually exist. So yeah. that scared the shit out of me. Uh, at that time. That's crazy. Yeah, that's funny. I, I saw The Shining at seven. Someone let me into a room and here's Johnny and the, the, the descent into madness made me very and he looked a little like my uncle so for a little <laughs> while i was like hmm but yeah that's really funny but i had a, i think i had a, a bruce lee poster i was really into martial arts then and i could see having nunchucks as a kid i had nunch i knocked myself out by the way i used to work for this company called asian world of martial arts yeah so i would just do stock and all this stuff from like as i was a kid but i get free nunchucks chinese stars and i would throw them in my closet and one time the chain was too long so i was going around and i went between my legs and hit myself oh. in the back of the head and knocked myself out 
Wow. Wow. Well, you so know it was what? a fun experience. That's, um, <laughs> I think that a lot of people who had nunchucks had that experience because that's why it's in the movie Wedding Crashers, right? He's like, I'm like exactly. nunchucks. It's like the guy is like an infant as an adult. You know, Will Ferrell. So, that's yeah, funny. he's the best. Yeah. Uh, I think I had uh, Van Halen. I had ACDC. I yeah, had music. I didn't do the music thing. My sister had like Depeche Mode, like Dave Gahan. And oh, yeah. my, my, my brother, we, we did all sports. And we might have had like, what was a cool, you know, I might have had like the Sports Illustrated, like Christy Brinkley or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 my sports was not on my wall. I collected, I don't know if you remember, we were around the same age, but there was these books. There were sticker books. Oh, of course. So like for hockey books yeah, and all this course. stuff. So I, I was like, you know that was my Nowadays addiction. they have them and it literally costs like $800 to try to complete it really? with your kids. It's the worst. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was my passion. I used to do that. And, and then, uh, Wrestling, I was into wrestling, like, like uh, WWF and NWA. Yeah, I didn't have any of those. It was all Mets, Doc Gooden, and uh, – And I collected hmm. baseball cards, too. I had a bunch of baseball cards. Like the, My goal was to get the whole 1980 uh, uh, Phillies, Phillies World Series winning team. So oh. I got that, too. Cool. Hey, Mitch, I want to thank you so much for your time. Usually I ask people, like, where can they reach you and find you in social? I don't even know if you want people just to at reach Cat. out to you. You know, I don't really, I don't use a ton of social other than I think, right. you know, and I also think when you tweet as it's, it's our company, we, we own it, you know, so it's like, we, we try to keep it. I mean, I do have a Twitter feed at Mitch Baruch, but I don't really use it. Got it. Got it. All right. Thanks. Well, Len. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Appreciate good speaking it. to you. All right. You too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon. And I'm Saba. And we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down. down.